We entered again last week into our periodic studies in the Psalms, picking up with Psalm 84. And this morning we will carry right on ahead to the next selection, Psalm number 85. So turn with me now to the 85th Psalm, and we will read it in its entirety. Psalm 85, for the choir director, a psalm of the sons of Korah. O Lord, you showed favor to your land. You restored the captivity of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your fury. You turned away from your burning anger. Restore us, O God, of our salvation, and cause your indignation toward us to cease. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not yourself revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your loving kindness, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. I will hear what God the Lord will say, for he will speak peace to his people, to his godly ones, but let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Loving kindness and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Truth springs from the earth and righteousness looks down from heaven. Indeed, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its produce. Righteousness will go before him and will make his footsteps into a way. Father, we pray now that today you will give what is good, and that you will grant fruit in our souls because of what we hear in Psalm 85. Teach us today, we ask now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have noticed as we read along that this psalm unfolds on a kind of timeline of past, present, and future. In verses 1 through 3, the psalmist is looking to the past, isn't he? He's remembering all the good that God did for his people in previous days. O Lord, you showed favor to your land. You restored the captivity of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people, and so on. It's all in the past tense. It's what God has done. But then the psalmist comes to the present in verses 4 through 7. And in the present, things aren't so well. The people of Israel have once again brought God's indignation upon themselves. They are once again in need of restoration. And so the timeline of their story, if you can picture it in your mind's eye, has begun to sag a little bit at this point. It has begun to look like an inverted bell curve. God's people now seem to be once again at the bottom of their experience with the Lord, at the bottom of their walk with him. But the psalmist makes a request in verse 6 that I believe is the centerpiece of the whole psalm, the pivot point on which the psalm turns. Will you not yourself revive us again? Will you not yourself revive us again? That is the axis on which the bell curve now begins to turn upward again. Because having made such a request, the psalmist can now by faith extend the timeline out into the future and see God's people rising from the ashes again, which is what he does in verses 8 through 13. 
Verse 8, I will hear what God the Lord will say, for he will speak peace to his people, to his godly ones. Verses 12 and 13, indeed the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its produce. Righteousness will go before him and will make his footsteps into a way. There's a timeline here. That's the shape of this psalm. It begins on the mountaintop of God's blessing in previous days. But then it progresses into the valley of Israel's present unfaithfulness. And then on a prayer for revival, it concludes with the psalmist by faith seeing another mountain peak in the future, a day of God's favor once more. And this morning, I'd simply like to take the psalm in those three portions, the past, the present, and the future. Thinking about what was happening in those times in Israel and in the psalmist's heart. And then also considering how these things might apply to our own day. And to our own need that God would revive us again. Many of us may find ourselves somewhere on the same sort of bell curve as did Israel and her psalmist here in Psalm 85. We too may have peaks and valleys in our life of faith. And this psalm can help us to know how to pray. This psalm can help us to yearn for revival in our own lives and in our own day. And so as I said, let's take the psalm in those three portions of the timeline, beginning in verses 1 through 3 with the past. The past. All the verbs in verses 1 through 3 are written in the past tense, aren't they? The psalmist is clearly writing about what God did for Israel before. And what he did was nothing short of remarkable. O Lord, you showed favor to your land. You restored the captivity of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your fury. You turned away from your burning anger. Wonderful things. But the question is, what time period is the psalmist referring to? What is he looking back upon? Exactly when? Did God restore his people's captivity and forgive their sins and withdraw his fury? Well, in some ways, God is constantly doing these things, isn't he, for his people? But it would appear that, and the commentators that I read seem to to think that, the psalmist may be specifically referring to that time period in the latter period portions of the Old Testament when God delivered his people from their exile in Babylon, when God brought them home once again to rebuild his temple and to rebuild their cities and to rebuild their lives in the land of promise. That is the captivity of Jacob that the psalmist seems to be referring to and the restoration that he's referring to. You can read about it in the book of Ezra. And if you do, you'll find that these were mountaintop days in many ways. Days that fit the description of God's goodness here in verses 1 through 3. O Lord, you showed favor to your land. You restored the captivity of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your fury. You turned away from your burning anger. The people of Judah had gone into captivity because of their iniquity And their sin, verse 2. God's anger, verse 3, burned against them for their unfaithfulness. 
their disregard of the Sabbath, their disregard of God's prophets whom he sent to them. They're playing the harlot with foreign gods and profaning God's house with them so that they actually did more evil than the pagans whom God had driven out before them. And so God burned with anger, with fury against them. And he gave them over to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And he came and laid siege to Jerusalem. And his army eventually sacked the city and burned it with fire and broke down its walls and ransacked the temple and carried the people of Judah away into exile in Babylon, leaving only the poorest of the land behind. And there the people stayed in exile away from the land that was promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, ruled by a foreign power with no temple and no proper worship, no sacrifices being made for their sins. And there they remained for 70 years. But then, in the book of Ezra, the Lord restored the captivity of Jacob. Cyrus, the king under whose authority the Jews now lived, issued a decree that the Jews be allowed to return to their homeland and to rebuild God's house. And he also returned the temple furnishings which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away. And he ordered his people to give to the Jews who were returning silver and gold and cattle and so on to make their work and their lives easier when they returned to rebuild their land. And so the Jews did return, and they lived in the land of promise, and they restored the sacrifices of the Lord. And eventually, after some opposition and some dragging of their feet, they got the temple rebuilt too. And after all those years away, they observed the Passover once more, and there was a great celebration. As Psalm 126 puts it, When the Lord brought back the captive ones of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with joyful shouting. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. At the end of 70 years, Psalm 85, the Lord forgave the iniquity of his people. He covered all their sin. He withdrew all his fury. He turned away from his burning anger. And the psalmist remembered. The psalmist had not lost sight of what God had done in prior days. The psalmist has not allowed his memory to lapse so as not to remember those great days when God restored the captivity of Jacob and when God withdrew his fury and brought back the captive ones of Zion to inhabit the land of promise and to worship in his house once more. Those were great days, days to be remembered and celebrated, time out of mind, days that God's people would and should never forget. It's a wonderful period in the history of the scriptures. And we have days like that too, don't we? Days that we should never forget. Days that we will never forget. If we know Christ, we can look back on days when God brought us out of a kind of captivity. Not just a kind of captivity, a real captivity, right? 
We can look back on days when God broke off of us the captivity of sin and brought us out of our spiritual exile and into the land of faith. Do you remember what it was like when you first believed? Do you remember what it was like when, like the Israelites, returning to Zion, you first laid eyes on the sacrifice that was made for sin? When you came, in other words, to understand that Jesus had died for you and experienced the release and the promise and the refreshing of forgiveness? Those were marvelous days, weren't they? When God restored your captivity and forgave your iniquity and covered all your sin and turned away from his burning anger against you? What a marvelous thing it was to finally be saved. And like the psalmist, we still look back with gladness on those golden days. And there have been other glorious days too, in our own lives and in the life of the larger Christian church. Days which we could write about with as much delight as was behind the psalmist's pen here in verses 1 through 3. There have been days for us when every word in the Bible seemed to come alive and when we were eager for Sunday to come round again so that we might again go to the house of God. And there have been times of great revival in the history of the church too, hasn't there? Haven't there? When the churches were full and people were being saved every day. Not only in the book of Acts, but even in recent centuries. Some of you can remember days, perhaps, when the pews in this city were packed and when the word of God seemed to be the delight of hundreds of people. Or maybe you've read about the days of Whitfield or Edwards or Spurgeon, the great revivals of old. And like the psalmist, you and I can look to the past with a burning heart when we remember how God blessed his people in power. Oh, Lord, you showed favor to your land. There's a lot to be gleaned from remembering, from not forgetting the great blessings of God in previous days. But as the psalmist then turns his attention to the present, the picture is not nearly so rosy. The past has been glorious, the present is not. So let's turn with him now, there in verses 4 through 7, to the present. Israel had had a glorious heritage. She had experienced great deliverances in, in many times in the past, not least the deliverance from exile in Babylon. But now, and these facts could have been written at many points in her history, now Israel is back in the valley of sin. Verse 4, they have brought God's indignation upon themselves once more. Verse 5, they've provoked his anger once again. Now it could be that this psalm was, was actually written during those years after their return from exile when they were dragging their feet to rebuild God's house. Or it may have been written later on when many of the people had married foreign wives contrary to the law of God and there was a great need for repentance. Or the psalmist may have written these admissions of guilt at some other period of unfaithfulness. But whenever it was, here the psalmist sits in one of those periods at the bottom of the bell curve, looking back on God's deliverances, on God's interventions, God's mercies in previous days, but not seeing much to cheer him in his own day. 
But here's the important thing. The psalmist doesn't here dwell on the past merely with a sense of wistfulness. He doesn't do, in other words, what I often find myself doing. He doesn't say, you know, if I'd only lived in a previous generation, then I might have seen the blessing of God. No, he remembers the past, not so that he can mope, but so that he can pray about the present. He remembers the past, not so that he can talk about days gone by and how much better things used to be. He remembers how much better things were previously so that he can pray that things will be better once again now. He says to the Lord, in essence, God, we have seen you do mighty things before. We have seen you work wonderful deliverances before. We've seen you break our bonds before. We've seen you forgive our sins before and pour out new waves of blessing in previous days. Lord, will you not do it again? Will you not yourself revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your loving kindness, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. What a prayer this is. Verse 6a, I think, is one of the great prayers in all the Bible. Will you not yourself revive us again? Lord, we need reviving. We're not what we once were. We've slipped back into old habits and sinful practices. We've grieved your spirit. We've forfeited many of your blessings. And Lord, we recognize that only you yourself can help us. Verse 6, only you can bring about revival. Only you can restore the zeal and the joy and the blessing that we have known before. So will you not do it? Will you not yourself revive us again? That, I say, is one of the great prayers in the Bible. And partly because it gives us a model that needs so often to be repeated even in this age of the church. We need revival, and we need to pray, verse 6a. Now, the people of God today are not exactly like the people of God in the Old Testament. Israel belonged to God as a whole nation. And if you belonged to that nation, you were in the covenant, whether you were a true believer or not. And so it's not surprising that Old Testament Israel often regressed and stumbled back into the same sins of previous generations. Because the nation was always a mixed bag of true believers and of folks who were in the covenant only by virtue of their birth, their nationality. But in the New Testament, the people of God are comprised differently. The New Covenant is comprised, Jeremiah 31 tells us, only of people who actually know the Lord. The new covenant is comprised, Jeremiah 31 tells us, of people who have God's law written not only on the tablets of old, but on their very hearts. And therefore, since the new covenant people are of a spiritual and not merely national makeup, since the church is not to be a mixed bag of believers and not, you would expect that perhaps our backslidings would not be nearly as frequent or severe as under the old covenant. And I think, by and large, that's true. If we set aside those who make it into the church as pretenders and think really just about those who are genuinely converted people, who are a part of the true church, I think it is right to say that the valleys of sin and spiritual sloth and rebellion are not nearly as deep or as frequent in the New Testament era 
as they were sometimes in the old. But there are still valleys, are there not? There are still periods in which God's people, in groups or as individuals, are far from what they should be. There are still backslidings. And it's all the more disturbing, it seems to me, when there are, because it doesn't have to be this way in this church age. Because if we are part of the church, we all have the Holy Spirit. And we all know the Lord. And we all have the law written on our hearts if we really belong to Christ. And so, while the valleys of our backsliding may not be as deep as some of what we read in the Old Testament, they're just as sad. It's a sad thing when God's people are not what they ought to be. And I want to encourage you to think about our own present tense, just as the psalmist looked around and assessed the situation in his own day. Are we what we should be? In the larger American church, in this local church, as individuals. If we look at our own present and compare it to the blessing that we have known or to the blessing that we can read about poured out by God in previous days, I think we might want to join the psalmist in crying out to the Lord, will you not yourself revive us again? Think about the American church as a whole at the present day. We have more bells and whistles than we have ever had. And we have many advantages that previous generations have not. And there are encouraging signs here and there of the Lord working truly and mightily. But on the whole, it seems to me that we have less and less of a grip on the American people. We're not what we once were as a church in this country. I was talking to an older minister the other day, and he was remembering how in his younger years, I think probably in the 1950s and 60s, he could stand up and preach the gospel on a town square on a Saturday afternoon and have a whole crowd of people gather around to hear the word of God. A few brothers from the seminary came up a few years ago and tried the same thing on Fountain Square downtown and not a single person stopped to pay them any mind. This older pastor also spoke about conviction of sin, of how in his younger days people coming to Christ seemed to really come broken over their sin and needy for a Savior. Whereas today, he said, many professing faith seem to be mostly matter-of-fact about it. Oh, you know, I've been examining the truths of Christianity and I've come to the conclusion that I should believe on this Jesus. And while I'm not insinuating that real conversion must be accompanied by a certain amount of tears or emotion, what I am saying is that conviction of sin and willingness to hear the word of God and the American church's influence on the people around us seem to be lagging and sagging like a bell curve beneath our feet. Some of that is because the culture is different than it once was. But much of it is because the church does not have the spiritual power that she once did, the spiritual influence that she once did. And perhaps that's why the culture has gone the way it's gone as well. Our past has been glorious 
in this land in many ways, even in some ways our recent past. God has showed favor to the church in our land. He has blessed us. But today, the present is a different story. And instead of just lamenting our losses or or thinking about how great things used to be and bemoaning the present day, and instead, on the other hand, of just ramping up the entertainment in our churches to try to fix the problem, it's time that we prayed. It's time that we got on our knees and prayed for the church in this faltering nation. Will you not yourself revive us again? But you know, the church in a nation only goes so far as the individual local churches in the neighborhoods. And so I'd ask you to do a little thinking also about the present tense in our own little congregation and in our own lives who make it up. Because as I look out upon the crowds and upon the individual faces in the crowds, I'm struck with the thought that we need revival here. We need to pray for our church and for ourselves, just what the psalmist prays here. Will you not yourself revive us again? Some of us are growing. Some of you are making progress and flourishing in the faith like never before. But others of us, frankly, have stopped. Some of us have even gone backwards. Some of us know that we're not what we once were. We heard Psalm 84 last week. We listened to the psalmist's love for God's house. And we can remember a time when we felt just like he does. When a day here was better than a thousand outside. But if we're honest, many of us don't feel that way now. We don't hunger for the word now like we once did. We don't pray now like we used to. Fellowship isn't as sweet now as in times gone by. If we will sit with the psalmist for a minute or two, we will find ourselves remembering days of blessing. We will find ourselves looking to the past and remembering God's favor and recalling his grace and how eager we once were spiritually. And then we may look at the present and realize that something has gone wrong. And I hope it will drive us to pray like the psalmist prays. Will you not yourself revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Does it seem like I've been on this soapbox a good bit lately? I think that I have. Because it's part of my job to pay attention to the condition of the sheep. And I see many of us seeming to drift off to sleep, seeming to grow complacent, seeming to be content to have green pastures all around us, but not eating our fill. And so I just ask you to consider the past, how you once felt about being in this house, how you once prayed, how you once enjoyed the word of God, how you once delighted in Christian fellowship. Consider the past and then with the psalmist, compare it to the present And pray accordingly. Consider the past. Consider God's blessings of old. And then compare it to the present. And pray accordingly. 
for the American church, for the Pleasant Ridge Baptist Church, and for yourself. Restore us, O God of our salvation, and cause your indignation toward us to cease. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not yourself revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your loving kindness, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. That's a good prayer to pray in the present. But now, notice also that not only does the psalmist not live solely in the past, but neither does he get stuck stewing over the present. He laments over the present, and he uses the past as a springboard to pray that God would come in great blessing again. But then he goes on also with the eyes of faith to envision what the future will be under God's blessing. And so let's think about that now in the third place and from verses 8 through 13. The future. I will hear what God the Lord will say, for he will speak peace to his people, to his godly ones. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Loving kindness and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Truth springs from the earth and righteousness looks down from heaven. Indeed, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its produce. Righteousness will go before him and will make his footsteps into a way. The psalmist has great faith, doesn't he? He has prayed in verses 4 through 7, for revival, for blessing, for God to come again. And here, he believes that God is going to answer. He believes that glory will dwell in the land once more. Because God has done it before. God has done it in the past. And God is a God who hears the prayers of his people in the present. And so God will answer, he says. God will speak peace to his people once more. God will restore and revive us again. And I wonder if you and I can pray with that kind of faith. I wonder, when we think about the revival that we need, if we can see in our mind's eye the Lord speaking peace to his people, verse 8. If we can see glory dwelling in our land once more, verse 9. If we can see, verse 12, the Lord giving what is good. The psalmist has this certain confidence that God will come once again in power as in times past and revive his people and cause them to rejoice in him once more. And I wonder if we can see like that with the eyes of faith. I confess that I struggle in this area. I tend to imagine that things will never change. Things will always be the way they are, the trajectory will just continue in the direction it's going. And I certainly don't often have the grand visions of the psalmist here. But God doesn't require great faith in order to move mountains, does he? If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. And the same is true with this prayer for revival. I would be glad if 
many of you could envision a glorious revival just as the psalmist does in verses 8 through 13. I would be glad if your faith were so great that you could almost smell the fragrance of revival coming upon the wings of our prayers. But I also know that even if your faith isn't that grand, you can still pray. You can still ask with what little faith you do have. And if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, well, that's enough for God to use, isn't it? So pray for revival. Pray that the pews would be filled in this house. Pray that the baptismal will be full week after week because so many people are coming to Christ. Pray that the gospel might attract a crowd once more on the town squares of this nation. Perhaps most of all, pray for yourself. Pray that you might be what you once were, or maybe what you never have been, but could be for the Lord. Pray that glory may dwell in our land once more. Pray that God would come again and restore us from our bondage and cover all our sin and withdraw his fury and bring us into a spiritual season in this church in which our tongue might be filled with joyful shouting, in which it would be said of us among the nations, or at least among this neighborhood, the Lord has done great things for them. And once God's people have prayed such, Let them not turn back to folly. Verse 8. Let them not turn back to folly. I urge you, Christian, lay down whatever foolishness you're entertaining in your life right now. Set aside the nonsense and the wasted time that keeps you from the Lord. Let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Lay that aside most of all. The sin that is entangling you. God's salvation, verse 9, is near to those who fear Him. So let us fear Him. And let us remember His mighty deeds of old. And let us pray with faith that He would do it again. O Lord, You showed favor to Your land. You restored the captivity of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of Your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all Your fury. You turned away from Your burning anger. Will You not Yourself revive us again that Your people may rejoice in You? I will hear what God the Lord will say, for He will speak peace to His people, to His godly ones, but let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land.